My topic is faith to change the world. Let me tell you a little about, about myself. I served in the Peace Corps in Ethiopia and taught for 12 years before joining the United States Foreign Service as a diplomat in 1984. I held diplomatic posts in Europe, South Asia, and Africa. During the time I lived and worked and traveled in over 50 countries, I searched for a faith that made sense to me, and you've heard a little bit about my journey. You're about to get my preliminary conclusions from my global research. We need an abiding faith in order to change the world. The world must be changed if we are to survive as a humane people. Our Unitarian Universalist faith changed the world in the past, and I'm calling on you to dig deep into yourselves to find the faith needed to change the world again before it's too late. In big, bold letters inside the UU Church in San Francisco, Jesus' words are reproduced. Behold, the kingdom of God is within you. In my own search for God, I have felt it is of paramount importance to find out where God is located. Is he or she flying around in the sky somewhere? You're going to get my personal view, and you are free in our free faith to disagree. However, I believe that God is in us. The Quakers say that there is that of the, of the divine in all of us, which is why they are so adamantly against killing. To kill a person is to kill the divine that resides in that person. Muslims emphasize the worship of a unified creator, and they reject the Trinity as we Unitarians have done. Muslim Sufi mystics take the concept of unity a step further and say that there is no essential difference between the creator and creation. The creator and creation are one. We are God's creation, but we are also creators. I am here today to ask you to use your faith and your power to create change to make a better world with justice and compassion. With a little faith, you'll find you have more power than you think. We have an abiding faith that a small child with a slingshot can defeat a giant. As one of the smallest organizations at the United Nations, we punch far above our weight. We have made history by bringing sexual orientation, gender identity, human rights to the forefront of the UN agenda. Single-handedly, we got a discussion of sexual orientation, gender identity, human rights onto the agenda of the human rights, UN Human Rights Conference in Paris in 2008. This was the first time that sexual orientation, gender identity, human rights had ever been discussed in the 61-year history of these conferences. I led a workshop on this topic, was appointed the GLBT caucus coordinator, and co-moderated a panel which included sexual orientation and gender identity human rights. This initiative helped push the French government as a co-sponsor of the Paris Conference to announce that it would introduce an initiative at the United Nations to call on the world to abolish laws which criminalize sexual orientation and gender identity. The UU-UNO was at the center of planning and interaction with the UN member states which finally brought this issue to the floor of the UN General Assembly on December 18, 2008 
when 66 nations called on the world to abolish all laws which criminalize and discriminate based on sexual orientation and gender identity. My favorite delegate that day was Sunil Pant, who is the first openly gay member of the Parliament of the Kingdom of Nepal representing the Communist Party. That day, Sunil represented his country at the United Nations General Assembly, wearing a large button announcing that he was a commie fag. Because of Sunil, Nepal was one of the 66 nations supporting the human rights of gays and lesbians that day. In March 2009, the United States, Turkey, and Ukraine joined this initiative, bringing the total to 69 countries, which call for an end of this horrible oppression. Shortly thereafter, the Human Rights Council in Geneva declared that international law, which already prohibits discrimination based on race, religion, gender, ethnic origin, and other status, also prohibits discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Currently, there are laws in 79 countries that make it a criminal offense to be gay, lesbian, or lesbian, and in seven, you can be put to death for being gay or lesbian. Not only is this legislation on the books, but it is ruthlessly enforced. Uganda is one such place, and it is getting worse, not better. In April 2009, the Human Rights Watch asked the UUUNO to spearhead the faith-based initiative to oppose the American Christian fundamentalists in Uganda. We have been persuading, these fundamentalists have been persuading the Ugandan government to pass a kill the gays law. The UUUNO obtained over 350 signatures from a wide range of faith traditions, including Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, and Muslim clergy who oppose criminal sanctions against people based on their actual or perceived sexual orientation. I want to note that the latent homophobia in Uganda was stoked by fundamentalist preachers like Rick Warren, who told the Ugandans that homosexuality threatened their families and their children. Fundamentalist preachers from the United States provoked the Ugandan to conceive a new law, even more horrific than the ones they already had. American fundamentalists helped draft the Ugandan kill the gays law, and today, Valentine's Day, Unitarian, the Unitarian Universalist Congregation in Kampala, Uganda, is out in protest against the Kill the Gays law. They are joined by Reverend Marlon Lavenhar from All Souls Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Reverend Patricia Ackerman from the UUUNO. And I have just learned a few minutes ago that she will be on CNN at noon today, so you may want to check that out. Marlon and Patricia are standing with our fellow UUs in Kampala today, risking arrest or worse to protest this terrible legislation. If enacted as written, the Ugandan law would execute gays and lesbians. It would imprison anyone who helps gays or lesbians, such as our minister of the UU church in Kampala. It would also punish anyone who knows a gay or a lesbian and doesn't report that person to the police. GLBT people do all they can to flee death and persecution in countries like Uganda, Iran, and Iraq. 
a few end up in this country. Beginning in the days of President George W. Bush, millions of your tax dollars were being funneled into conservative, faith-based organizations to care for refugees in this country. The largest of these organizations is Catholic Charities. These organizations generally resettle refugees in nationality groups, which put gay and lesbian refugees together with the very people they are trying to escape. Two such refugees are Nafwal Muhammad and Yusuf Ali from Iraq. They underwent torture for being gay in US-occupied Iraq. Both confirmed to me that under the US occupation of their country, it is far worse and more dangerous for gays and lesbians than it was before the US invasion. Many of their friends have been tortured and killed. So Yosef and Nahual escaped to neighboring Syria, where they faced many of the same dangers as they faced in Iraq. They applied for refugee status with the United Nations High Commission for Refugees in Damascus, Syria. Yusuf, who had earlier given an interview with CNN, got refugee status in eight months. Nafwal got, spent four years in Syria before he got his refugee status. Finally, both came to the promised land, the United States of America. Yosef and Nafwal were sent to Houston and handed over to Catholic Charities, who settled them with other Iraqi refugees in the worst part of the city. Their fellow Iraqis harassed and threatened them in Houston, just as they did in Baghdad. Through our efforts at the UUUNO, Yusuf and Nafwal are now in touch with the GLBT Community Center in Houston and the UU Congregation. Plans are afoot to move them to a friendlier area where they can receive appropriate support. When I asked Yusuf and Nafwal what they needed most, they said, friends. Then they added that they also needed rent money and furniture. <laughs> However, at the top of their list was friends. Our efforts for Yosef and Nafwal are just beginning, are just the beginning of a new UUUNO program to help GLBT refugees in North America find welcoming and affirming friends. Today, the UUUNO is the recognized faith-based leader at the United Nations with the only advocacy program designed to end global criminal sanctions based on sexual orientation and gender identity. This work has been sponsored by you, UU members, the Veach Program on the Narcos Foundation. It is our faith in the yes we can philosophy that has allowed the small UU office at the UN to change the course of history and not for the first time. In addition to GLBT rights, we work for women's rights on the commission on the status of women. We work to get the United States to ratify CEDAW, which is the convention on the elimination of all forms of discrimination against women. The United States also needs to ratify the International Convention on the Rights of the Child. I sat in the UN General Assembly on December 18th, that same day when we had the GLBT initiative, and watched a vote on whether or not access to food was a human right. 184 nations vote, voted yes, access to food is a human rights. There were no abstentions and only one no vote. And I'll give you one guess as who said the no vote. Yes, it was the United States. Voted against food as a human right. 
I also believe that access to water is a human right. Nobody should have to choose between spending money on food or water, and I have known such people that have to make that decision, whether to spend their few pennies to buy water or buy food. In the 1990s, the UUUNO led the faith-based community pushing for the establishment of the International Criminal Court. This court, which the United States still refuses to join, ensures that human rights atrocities cannot be committed with impunity. This court holds governments and individuals accountable for crimes against humanity. Last year, I was asked to be the leader of the Faith and Ethics Network for the International Criminal Court. Our work is to use our faith and ethical traditions to get the United States to join the court. I have faith that working as we do with other faith and ethical traditions, we can move the United States government to join this important United Nations Court of International Justice. Because of my 2008 role in Paris, I was given an even more central role in the 2009 conference in Mexico City. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon called for an end to global, uh, for, for global nuclear disarmament. The conference went further, calling for reductions in controls on the manufacture and sale of small arms and on military spending generally. Here are a few facts to consider. The world spends $1.5 trillion every year on its military establishments. Nearly half that amount, $711 billion, is spent by the United States. If the world cut its military spending by just 10%, we could solve global poverty. Americans get very upset about providing national health care. Here is where your tax dollars go. Out of each dollar you pay in taxes, 54 cents goes for military spending, about 6 cents for education, about 5 cents for health. Over half our tax dollars go for military spending. Why are there no town hall meetings about military spending? What if the United States just cut its military spending by a mere $100 billion, leaving the United States with a meager $611 billion in military spending? The U.S. would still be spending more money, with this reduced rate, mind you, would be spending more money than Europe, China, Russia, the Middle East, and North Africa combined. Spending less on the military leaves more to solve the world's social ills. I have been speaking across the United States and Canada, and I've also been listening. One area of great concern that I've heard over and over again is about how we are going to support our planet. As we continue to attack the ecology of our planet, we have seen the devastating effects in our climate in terms of increased storm activity and the disappearance of polar ice and rising sea levels, which threaten to wipe out entire lowland communities and even countries. We at the UUUNO listened to your concerns and now have a robust climate change initiative under the leadership of UUUNO board member Dr. Jan Dash, who is an environmental physicist. Jan represents the UUUNO on the United Nations NGO Committee for Sustainable Development, and he represented the UUUNO at the Climate Change Conference in Copenhagen. We are experts at moving policy forward at the United Nations. We have been doing it for nearly 50 years. However, we wanted to do something more tangible. 
We wanted to show the world how to help people in ways that enhances their dignity rather than depriving them of it. We located a community in eastern Ghana which has the highest HIV AIDS mortality rate in the country. The Mayakrobo people were displaced from their land due to the construction of the Akasombo Dam, which created Lake Volta, the largest man-made lake in the world. The dam was constru constructed to provide hydroelectric power for aluminum production at the British and American-owned factories. The dam also displaced the Mayakrobo people off their farmlands. In their efforts to survive, many of the Mayakrobo sought work in the cities and in neighboring countries. There they contracted HIV-AIDS and died, leaving 3,000 AIDS orphans behind. In Mayakrobo tradition, social problems are brought to the royal women of the community, the Queen Mothers. These women met and decided to adopt as many orphans as they could and find other caregivers or support the many grandmothers who were caring for their orphan grandchildren. The UUUNO came to this community and we said, how can we help? In my days with the U.S. government, I saw how USAID came to poor countries and told them what they needed and poured money into projects that often did little to help. At the UUUNO, we did things differently. Rather than telling the Mayakrobo Queen Mothers what we would do, we asked them how we could help. They told us that they were caring for these orphans, feeding them, clothing them, caring for them as well as they could, but they didn't have the funds to send them to school or provide health care. This is where they asked for help. So we partnered with the Queen Mothers to provide the funds necessary to send these children to school and provide health coverage for the children and for the caregivers. We visited this project in November 2009 and our office coordinator asked two teenage girls what she could give them. She said, ask for anything, whatever you want. Tell me what you'd like. The first girl said, I'd like some bread. The second girl nudged her and said, no, don't ask for bread. We should ask for paper and pencils for our schoolwork. Think of the children you know. What are their priorities? For our children in Ghana, their priorities are bread and education. Our program has been cited by the government of Ghana officials as the best of its kind and one which others, after which others should be patterned. The total cost is about $120 per child per year. That's about $10 a month to ensure that a child gets an education and the child and the caregiver get health care. When have you ever seen $10 a month do so much good? The UUUNO has had a long tradition educating UUs about the United Nations and its work. That's how we got our start. President John F. Kennedy's UN ambassador, a Unitarian, Adlai Stevenson, suggested to the first UUA president, Dana Greeley, that we have an office at the United Nations and that every UU congregation have a UUUNO envoy or envoy committee to ensure that UUs are connected with the UN. Today we have over 460 congregational envoys and we are looking for more. And we hope that this congregation will become a blue ribbon congregation. To become a Blue Ribbon congregation, you have to have an envoy, you have to make a, an annual contribution to the UUNO, which this congregation does, and we're asking that 5% of your members become UUUNO members. Every year we conduct an international intergenerational conference of our own at the United Nations. 
This conference attracts nearly 200 participants, about half of whom are between the ages of 14 and 18, while the rest are adults. In 2009, for the first time, we made the conference interfaith and focused on human rights. These three-day conferences in April are exciting affairs I encourage you to attend. Conferences tackle tough issues such as human trafficking in 2007, building a culture of peace in 2008, faith in human rights in 2009, and this year we will tackle climate change. Thanks to the Canadian permanent mission to the United Nations, we have been able to obtain a conference room within the UN itself for one of our panel discussions, giving participants a chance to sit where UN delegates sit, which is an exciting and inspiring experience. Despite its flaws, the United Nations is an amazingly effective organization when the member states allow it to function and provide it with necessary resources. With my own eyes, over a three-year period, I saw UN peacekeepers end the brutal civil war in Sierra Leone and restore that broken nation to health and stability. I have personally seen UN emergency teams care for refugees fleeing wars in ways that would put FEMA to shame. In 2003, I flew in an American embassy helicopter with U.S. Ambassador Peter Chavez to the Manor River Bridge, which spans the Manor River connecting Sierra Leone with Liberia. I stood on the Sierra Leone side and saw smoke rising from a town in Liberia that had just been attacked. Thousands of refugees were streaming across the bridge to safety in Sierra Leone. Immediately upon crossing the bridge, U.N. workers were there to check people's health, provide food, water, and clothing. Everyone was registered as many families get separated in these kinds of situations. I talked to a woman who was carrying a small child and asked her how old her child was. She told me the child wasn't hers. She said the child was alone and crying when the attack happened. She picked up the child and took her to safety. She looked at me in tears and said she hoped someone had done the same for her child. UN trucks quickly took these refugees to camps and effective family reunification investigations were immediately begun. In 2004, I came home. In 2005, I watched Hurricane Katrina and in the fiasco that happened afterwards on TV. I saw courageous U.S. Coast Guard helicopter crews rescue people from the rooftops of their houses and deposit them on empty highways where there was no food, no water, no shelter, no clothing, no medical attention, and no registration to reunify families. It took some American families six years to be reunified because there was no effective registration done at the time of the disaster in New Orleans. Every time I hear people tell me the United Nations doesn't know what it's doing, I think of what I saw in Africa and what I saw on the TV in New Orleans. The United Nations does a lot of things better than our government gives it credit for. Think how the UN coordinated the restoration of hundreds of coastline communities in Asia and Africa after the Asian tsunami in ways <coughs> that all of the efforts of the US government have yet to do in our own Gulf Coast. The UN offered to help the US Gulf Coast, but the US government refused. The Dutch offered to repair the levees in New Orleans, and our government refused that as well. The United Nations gets a bad rap in the U.S. government and media. 
media and governments in other countries give the United Nations far more credit for the vital and important work that it does as no other entity can do. Only the United Nations can speak credibly on behalf of all of humanity and the entire planet. The United Nations organizes global meetings to discuss climate change, human rights, the rights of women, nuclear disarmament, ending poverty, global health, and other issues. The, there are many politicians in this country who would like to see the United Nations destroyed, which is why the U.S. Congress consistently voted not to honor U.S. promises to pay our U.N. dues and peacekeeping assessments. It was reprehensible that we did not pay our U.N. dues and assessments. This administration, however, has paid our current dues, but not the many years of arrearages that we still owe. By not paying what we owe, we crippled the UN in its efforts to create peace in Darfur and in nearly 20 other war-torn locations. We crippled UN humanitarian and development efforts around the world. American leaders don't like the United Nations because they find it too difficult to control. This is exactly why we UUs should support the UN as a check and balance on all powerful countries, including our own. At the UU-UNO, we have faith in ourselves and in our principles. We, are our, we were audacious enough to hope that we could change the course of world history at the UN despite our small size and meager funding. We succeeded in establishing the International Criminal Court and in winning massive support for equal rights for all people without regard to sexual orientation and gender identity. With your continued help and support, we can continue to make historic change possible on a global scale at the United Nations. We promote our faith in the inherent worth and dignity of every person. We stand up to protect the innocent and the helpless. We have faith in our principles and in the beloved community we hope to create. We have an obligation to make the world a more just and compassionate place. The UUUNO needs your support, your membership, and your involvement. We come from a proud history of fighting for justice, and we need to continue in that tradition. Join us. Work with us to change the world with compassion and justice. With faith in ourselves and in our principles, we can change the world. Faith can and has overcome limitations of size. The world desperately needs needs what we UUs have to offer. Be proud of our life-affirming free faith. You can begin by filling out the UUUNO membership card, which hopefully you have, and generously support the UU voice at the UN. Help us keep the UU voice strong and effective at the most important international forum in the world, the United Nations. And borrowing from the late Reverend Forrest Church, let me close with amen and I love you.